and I'm Deepthi Muruli and today we will be talking about monumental matters the power subjectivity and space of India's Mughal architecture by none other than Shanti Kauri Bauer this is a 2011 publication through Duke University Press um Kauri Bauer is at Kauri Bauer, San Francisco State University. Yes, she is an associate professor in the art department. So she received her PhD in art from the University of California, Los Angeles. Her scholarly this is from the her little bio on the website. Uh, her scholarly research focuses on the preservation and representation of South Asian architectural monuments specifically. and the implications of these activities on the construction of social identities national memory and political protest more broadly her research focuses on issues of artistic agency the intersection of modernist aesthetics in the colonial and postcolonial world and the visual culture of contemporary asia and i think that's one of the things that um that aspect of her practice comes up really well in this book which i believe was her dissertation project right, right? yeah um because you know she is talking about monuments and monuments not as monumental building materials that mostly authors talk about when they're talking about architecture of south asia particularly uh from this time period but she's thinking about monuments um in their social political context its social political being um so i just want to point out two reviews which i found to be um sort of balanced um as far as their critique is concerned so one is by avishek ray who is at the time of writing the review he was a doctoral candidate at the department of cultural studies at trent i think he did a really good job of pointing out what is good about the book and what can be better so right at the end um and this resonated with me as well it'll make more sense when we talk about the book more but he says that he would like to if it were up to him if he could advise uh bauer on uh, how to make this book better he would have he would have suggested that she step out of the canons and consider anecdotal narratives as well and i think that's a fair criticism you know i feel like those are absent throughout the book but otherwise you know he does he does point out I'm that i'm kind of disagree with him on that but yeah? we 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 can discuss that yeah okay the second review that i wanted to bring up was by jyoti hosegrahar um as we know jyoti's written an amazing book on delhi and so you know she's familiar with the background mm-hmm. uh, the the sort of historical context of the work that bauer has produced and so right at the end of a review jose grahar says that this is an exceptional book that expands ways of thinking about histories of art and raises a bar for writing while scholarship on the relationship between architecture and pa- and power has often focused on the making of monuments and their designs the author's conceptualization of monuments as a material expression of power relation relations goes further to their lived lives and i think she really hits the nail on the head this is essentially what the project is what the book tries to do and in jose gras opinion does well um yeah and so both of these reviews are available through sage journals and you can look them up if you're interested in reading them I want to start really uh by pointing out something that I think I think some of the reviewers have but what what struck me particularly with this book mm-hmm. was that we really in 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 the field of architectural history of South Asia we have a survey culture 
our scholarship is predicated on a survey of the works of you know Mughals or the Deccan or whatever mm-hmm. before we actually get a chance to analyze them. Mm-hmm. Now, but what this book is doing is sort of not not going that route at all. There is no survey. There's mm-hmm. no introduction into Mughal architecture. True. It just sort of jumps into the post-Mughal life of mm-hmm. Mughal architecture, and I thought that was fascinating. That you know, it's it, it's a very gutsy move. True. Yeah. To to say that I'm going to use Lacan mm-hmm. and Lefebvre and even Zizek, Foucault, Foucault obviously, yeah. but Zizek uh-huh. <laughs> in 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 sort of um, and and even um, she uses De Soto. Mm-hmm. Like she uses a spate of scholars that we've often associated with post-structuralist theory mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. she takes them and uses them in doing a, 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 an analysis of Mughal architecture mm-hmm. uh, which has not been done before but also she refuses to do a survey of Mughal architecture yeah like there is no talk about minarets. Mm-hmm. There's no talk about the onion domes. There's right. no talk about Islamic Pia- architectural features. There's no talk about Pietro Dura technique. Yeah. You yeah. know that's that's what we're used to Mughal, when we think of Mughal mm-hmm. architecture. So so the absence of that itself is, in my opinion, fairly uh, a, a very new way of looking yeah. at, at at the Mughal visual culture. I agree with you, but also well to play the devil's advocate, and also I think this is my reading of it as well, I think there needs to be a balance when it comes to that. I agree that she doesn't she doesn't go yeah. into those, you know, like features of Mughal architecture that everybody discusses when they think about Mughal architecture, but I think at the same time she pushes it too far. So she doesn't talk about the monuments at all. That right? is true. That is um, true. So yeah. you think about she's talking about she mentions all of these buildings, so she, you know, the Taj and the Red Fort. The Red Fort and the Delhi Mosque. And so all of these um Important buildings are in there, but we never talk about the buildings themselves, right? The, we think of the buildings as sort of actors, but as sort of empty, abstract categories almost. I think the problem there is that that's not how she constructs her initial introductory mm-hmm argument right because at the very very beginning she kind of talks about the subjectivities of the monuments as well mm-hmm. and and somehow throughout the to, throughout her chapters there are six of them um we kind of miss these the agency of the monuments themselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um it's not that they're not they're not agentive um especially in her discussion of the taj mahal and and Kurson's sort of uh interaction with the Taj Mahal, Mm -hmm. the sublimity of of the monument becomes its agency, right? And I particularly like that. I don't. They're like, (laughs) I don't. They're like agentive strangers, right? Like, we see them doing things, but they're strangers to us still because we don't get to know these monuments at all. And for somebody who spends um, a fair amount of time in the book talking about the historical context of these monuments, right? So she's spending a lot of time setting them up, especially towards the second half of the book. Um, and she's trying to connect this these monuments to their historical context, so she's doing all of that work mm-hmm. as well. To put in all of that effort and still not talk about the monuments themselves sort of I agree, but, but here's here's what she's trying to do, and mm-hmm. what what I think she she's semi successful at this. I I, I give you that, but mm-hmm. she's she's making that attempt to take the sensuality of the building as a given. Mm-hmm. So the the point where I 
that's my problem with it too that you mm-hmm. know there's no descriptive you know verification of of the sensuality of the monument how the mm-hmm. sublime is created you know that that's missing and and that that would have it would have been great to have that as well but here she's sort of assuming that 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 subliminal quality to the taj exists mm-hmm. in this particular discussion which is in chapter 2 um Chapter 2 is called From Cunningham to Curzon, Producing the Mughal Monument in the Era of High Imperialism. Um, it's a, well, for for the listeners, it's a discussion about um, how Mughal architecture was used or renewed by uh, British powers um, in an effort to create, in, in an effort to produce uh, monumentality for their own uh, rule. So she she goes from Curson um, and she talks about Cunningham. She talks about I think Ferguson as well in yeah, that Ferguson chapter. Um, and so she's she's looking at all the usual cultures that we associate with mm-hmm. this period, sort of 18th century um, and 19th century. And and she's talking about how Mughal architecture was uh, seen and expression of the Taj and how Kirsten sort of buys into it mm-hmm. uh, I think she does a good job of that just sort of la- laying that out I haven't seen that elsewhere that's true and and so in in a way she's moving us forward into the, into 21st century scholarship for South Asian architectural history I would say we do, we have not quite seen that being done by anyone else I have to agree with you there um Okay, so moving on, do we want to do a brief, let's do a brief summary of all of the chapters, and then... Okay, so um, the book itself is divided into six chapters, uh, excluding an introduction and epilogue. Uh, The first chapter sort of of looks at... artists and poets in the 18th century who interacted with Mughal architecture. So um, she's talking about William Hodges. She talks about the poet uh, Mir, Mm -hmm. um, among others. Um, And then she moves on from there to the second chapter, which is the one that we just discussed. It's called From Cunningham to Curson. Mm -hmm. Uh, The third chapter is called Between Fantasy and Phantasmagoria, the Mughal Monument and the Structure of Touristic Desire. This is a a chapter where she talks about uh, British imperial tourists and the the tourist narrative that uh, that was a part of building this fantasy of uh, Mughal Empire and Mughal architecture. Uh, In that chapter, she also talks about how that particular uh, narrative was disrupted or inverted by Indian nationalism and nationalist nationalist leaders. Um, In in the fourth chapter uh, is the one that is tied integrally with with the Indian national movement. And in that chapter, it the this idea of the Mughal monument resisting British rule is elaborated on. And uh, and the and the formation later in the nationalist period of a Muslim identity predicated on these Mughal monuments is also discussed in great detail. Uh, from there, chronologically, she sort of moves into uh, the high nationalism and post-independence um, periods where she she is of the opinion that these monuments were not used by Nehru and Gandhi and others from the uh, nationalist, nationalist movement re- leadership to use them to create a catharsis for the Hindu-Muslim 
riots and the trauma associated with that. So she she's kind of um, critical about the lack of nationalist subjectivity that was associated with these buildings. So she's saying that these buildings really did not were not utilized in a in a productive way mm-hmm. uh, by Indian nationalist leaders. Um, the ch- chapter six sort of brings Mughal architecture into the current world, in, into like sort of late 20th, early 21st century. And this is where she really talks about how this trauma, this trauma of Hindu-Muslim division, which was crystallized in the partition in 1947, is still found in today's South Asia, and how it, that trauma still disrupts the national space that's associated with the Mughal monument today. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a continued critique of the lack of nationalist ideologies um, or the conflict between national nationalist ideologies and Mughal monuments even today. Yeah. Um, I thought those parts were really interesting, especially the last... Um, chapters Mm -hmm. where she is really taking the Mughal architecture and bringing them into the 21st century um, and and talking about the real repercussions of of the subjectivities as she calls them how those subjectivities help us relate to the monument today yeah and throughout this um, I think we should have mentioned that earlier but so essentially this throughout this whole project which she's trying to uncover is a monumental reel, right? The way mm-hmm. she's borrowing from Lacan there and she's trying to, like through all of these historical episodes that she describes, the project is to demonstrate how the monumental reel sort of fights back, you know, is resistant to Britishers, to Muslims, to Indian nationalists. And that is what, what confuses me really about this book. I've read the whole book and I still don't know what the monumental real is, which which is very problematic for me. Yeah. Um, that's, it would have been really useful to set up those words at the mm-hmm. very beginning, I feel. Like part of the confusion that we see with other reviews of this book as well and, and ourselves reading it has been that there are certain keywords that that are used throughout the book. Um, monumental real, with yes. the real with a capital R, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she also uses the word Indian real yeah. um, at times. And so th- those kind of keywords feel um, under under contextualized. Yeah, absolutely. And so that makes it more difficult to figure out the continuity of analysis becomes problematic because of the That's lack true. of that. And I think also... Um, and this, she doesn't mention this anywhere because, again, like you said, she doesn't really define for us what the real is. But I think, you know, starting from chapter one all the way to chapter six, the, the monumental real itself also has evolved. Um, it's constantly changing and turning into other versions of itself. But again, we never talk about that. Um, I, I have a note here which says so that on page 52, she talks about monumental real as having something to do with the sub subliminal quality of mm-hmm. uh, of the monument um, here so so here's why I actually like this book so much as well as not like this book um, <laughs> she is touching upon the the eros that she mentions right mm-hmm. so in, in in one of the chapters I think it's on it's in chapter two or three that two she mentions yeah. she mentions that that there is a 
division between eros and logos as in the sensual and the scientific mm-hmm. and and so here she's she is moving toward moving us towards looking at this monument not sci- just scientifically with the logo centric part but also with the with the eros of it right so mm-hmm. to think about it as um sensual uh-huh. and have a, a exp- and their experiential quality of these monuments but i guess like she's not the first one to do that like isn't it like standard post colonial critique to think of you know colonization and the activities of the asi in india um as sort of being of the scientific framework yes, but and who, dropping it of yes that's true but they have we had haven't had anyone really look at mughal architecture in an experiential manner yet she's not doing it shantikavuri do yeah. is not doing it but you know she's moving us towards that okay so see like okay here's where it gets really problematic so if that's what she's trying to do by thinking of monuments as abstract agentive strangers she undoes that project at the same time right so you can't have it both ways so if you're trying to push it into that direction then she pushes it back from the other so it sort of undoes itself right no i i i see that as a i i see that that conflicts as well mm-hmm. to to a certain extent it just seems kind of off in this entire project is that sometimes it feels it feels like she's describing too much agency to these monuments right did you get that sense or is that just me like i feel like with that whole idea of the monument of real for mm-hmm. example you know it makes it sound like it's not that it's ripping these monuments out of their context it sort of breaks it down into um really neat categories where like monuments are sort of fighting back or like resisting or like I doing things i didn't get that no no just, i mean in okay. fact that was that's that was my critique of uh, of some of those chapters that um i don't see them as monumental agency right like mm-hmm. it, i i see it when she talking about sublime for example uh, i also saw it uh, she she talks about she says objectal remnant of of its materiality is the is the I, what is what she what does she mean by that she is talking about the monument is present right uh-huh. sometimes we miss that in in talking about uh mughal architecture for example if mm-hmm. we talk about um you know how it was constructed who it was the patron of it mm-hmm. taj mahal for example is always associated with shah jahan and often times mm-hmm. um we're talking about the love between him and his wife um and and the and the materiality of the monument gets lost yeah and i think at that point she she is making a case to say that the materiality matters because um because the narrative of the monument is really predicated on the fact that it's there as a physical object that you can interact with you can move through it no, you can I, you know, I agree with that i agree the, with the that the spatiality really is about the the physicality the, the physicality, the physicality of, of the that's absolutely true i was thinking of it more like for example when she talks about sir sayed ahmed khan right mm-hmm. and she's talking about how architecture comes into the work that he was doing in a very particular way in that sort of situation you know she sort of isolates architecture or monuments as one aspect of it that is really important um but again that was in his in society's practice that was it was tied to so many other things as well right and so she leaves those other things sort of out the no she doesn't leave them out so much as she ascribes less importance to them and that sort of seems like a imbalanced sort of opinion to me 
On that note, we should also talk about um, a particularly critical review that we read of uh, Shantika Buribaur's uh, book uh, by a very um, famous and senior architectural historian, Mughal architectural historian. And um, she, the, the, the architectural historian, she had real valid concerns about some some aspects of the book that we, we've discussed thus far. We I mm-hmm. think we agree with some of it. Uh, but it was also towards the end of this book, um, in chapter six and then the epilogue especially, mm-hmm. there's a discussion of... Uh, the Taj Mahal Corridor project, one of the projects that were, there was a multi-partner uh, project that taken up and it wasn't really successful. Um, a, a part of it was actually done by students, the urban planning students at University of Illinois, mm-hmm. at Urbana-Champaign, oh, our sister concern. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and the, the project really did not work out. Mm-hmm. Um, so Shanti Kavaribawar kind of points that out and talks about how that project did not uh, really um, work out because of um, because the way that project cons- did not engage with the monument and the and the subjectivities of the monument. Um, she actually says that. Um, on page one fifty two, she says the LAD study implicitly discounted traditional uses of the space and recommended incorporating the waterfront into the tourist experience. Um, so here, the the architectural historian who was critiquing her is talking about the fact that she assumes that the traditional uses of space was different from that of the tourist experience that's being crafted. Mm-hmm. And, and this architectural historian kind of almost rightly points out that most of these monuments were not however they were traditionally used uh, in in the Mughal times, were never used that way later. In fact, uh, she mentions a couple of the buildings that were used as, um, you know, a place for cows. cows, Yeah, cows. Right? (laughs) So um, there there are these instances of Mughal monuments being used for other purposes. Mm -hmm. And so so it is a valid critique that, you know, uh, that Shanti Kavaribawar kind of mentions that it is the traditional spaces have to be used in a traditional way, mm-hmm. right? That's that's part of... Yeah, I don't. I think I don't agree with her on yeah. that either. But where that criticism is gets problematic is that this 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 particular architectural historian was involved in that project as well. Uh, I think yeah, that's it's really it gets really tricky because you know it's a whole other kind of worms when you bring in tourism and the prop like you know there's there's a giant there's a big section in there dedicated to talk of um, UNESCO and all of those are such broad projects in themselves and to address all of that in the space of a chapter which is already talking about you know Nehru and Gandhi and the whole nationalist project and you know in the context of all of that is that the right chapter mm-hmm. yeah in the context of all of that to also talk about this is I feel like it's too much, you know. You can't address all of those things in one go. Yeah, I, th- I think that's what happened. That you know that that section became um, really condensed, and so I don't think she had a she had time she mm-hmm. had space to elaborate. Um, she mentions that uh, that that particular project sits quote-unquote, as a symbol of the discord between the national trend of rapid development and the protection of the nation's heritage. Mm -hmm. And this 
unquote, put quote unquote. <laughs> and this I actually agree uh-huh. that you know the 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 sort of neoliberal agenda of the Indian government in many ways um, are not always um, uh, it doesn't can't always go hand in hand with the project of preserving. Um, in the, heritage. the heritage, the sort of constructed heritage, built heritage of of the country, and so, and that's a problem with all mm-hmm. South Asian countries, right? Yeah. Like it's it's hard to, and it's hard everywhere, even in the United States, or if you look at countries in Europe, mm-hmm. um, it, it's a problem. But how um, in America, especially, that has been solved, uh, and even in Europe for that matter, is by making n- national heritage itself about tourism. Yeah, um, but that again is problematic too. Yeah, so that that's exactly the, this chapter kind of identifies some of the yeah. the sort of starting threads really of these problems, but then really can't elaborate because uh, that that's a whole another project really. Yeah. Um, but I guess like here, I want to take a moment to say something about the book, which I did really appreciate. Sorry. Um, there are times when I do feel like. Power is taking on too much in the space of a chapter, um, particularly in the case of this chapter, but also other places throughout the book. Um, but at the same time, what I think the book does really well is that for a reader who is not familiar with the historical, um, social, cultural background of India, especially its colonial past, the book does a really good job of bringing all of that history together with the history of the built environment. So I would imagine, you know, for undergraduate students or somebody who's new to the subject, the book does a good job of bringing together works that you would have to read in isolation. And, you know, that's the sort of work that nobody, I think, would be willing to take on for the sake of learning a thing or two about mobile architecture unless mm-hmm. you're really invested in that in that body of, of work. Um, so this book, in that way, is brilliant. Um, and I think we have to give that to Bauer. Um, so final notes. Uh, yeah, uh, final notes. I, I'm i very glad that uh, Kaveri Shanti, uh, Shanti Kaveri Bauer, uh, I'm, I apl- apologize to the author of this book for messing up her name so many times. Apologies, uh, ma'am. In, 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 the, in this conversation. Um, I really, really appreciate that she took on this project because it's a project that needs to be done. It's it's a it's a project in many ways that's that's sort of cutting edge in, in South Asian studies, yeah. um, not just for architectural history. It's a project, also interestingly, that more than architectural and art historians can get, uh, can engage with. True, true. Um, the fact that stylistic analysis is mm-hmm. um, kind of absent. Um, is, Which for the non-interested reader is really boring and tedious. Exactly. So, you know, it kind of helps in that way. Both of us being art historians yeah. sort of miss that. But, true. but in many ways, it kind of makes it easier and more and more sort of accessible mm-hmm. for the sociologist or the uh, or the historian uh, of, of, say, um, or, the, or, or a post-colonial theorist, for example, who does not really want that information, but ra- wants to see how the space uh, of these monuments interact, mm-hmm. uh, pol- is used politically, or is uh, is seen socially. Socially, true. For, for that, this book works wonderfully well. And again, to just to quickly go back to the review that we mentioned, um, I think it's important to also 
side with Bauer on one other thing. I think that, you know, the architectural historian that we talked about, in her review, she critiques Bauer for relying too much on uh, post-structuralist thought. Um, and I think, I feel like that was a little too harsh because when, because everybody has used Foucault and Lacan and Lefebvre, um, but they usually aren't critiqued the same way that Bauer was. Um, and if, you know, I think that's fine. I don't see anything wrong with that. Also, final thought, we are, we do like the book. We, we do like the book. High five. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry, thumbs up. We, we recommend the book.